Welcome to the Ethics Experts, where we're elevating ethics and compliance and HR to the strategic level it's supposed to be. Hey, hey, this is the Ethics Experts. If it's your first time joining us, welcome. And if you are a returning subscriber, hey, friend, hope you're having an amazing day. You look amazing today. See what happens when you subscribe to the Ethics Experts. You get a bonus greeting on every single episode. So hit that subscribe button and join us as we change the world by making our workplaces better. Uh, real treat today, I'm with... Uh, Avni Desai, CEO of Shellman, and um, you're somebody I met a little while ago, and you're just making such great waves in a good way uh, in your company and the way that you run your uh, company, the type of culture you are building there. Uh, it's something that I think, you know, you're just like a real next-gen leader, and uh, I was excited to get you on and pick your brain about, you know, how you kind of got to where you're at and what your principles are or what principles kind of drive you uh, in your organization. So welcome to the Ethics Experts. Thanks, Nick. It's great to be here. Yeah. So let's start with how you got to where you're at. Um, yeah. It's been a kind of an, an interesting ride from um, from what I know, but share share with us how you kind of uh, assumed the helm of such a cool ship. Sure. Um, so I'm going to go back a really long time to before I was born. Um, you know, they say your journey is written in your stars. So, you know, my parents were both born in India in the 1940s, and both my maternal and paternal grandparents believe that education is a ticket to success. And if you think about it, 1940s, India, that was a really progressive mindset when mm -hmm. you consider that time period. Um, but they passed that mentality onto, your onto their kids um, who would then marry and have two daughters, my two older sisters. And at that point, they were still in India, but they knew that, my, especially my dad, knew that they if my daughter, if their daughters, my sisters wanted to be successful, they would have to leave the only life they knew, the only language they knew, the only religion they knew, the only people they knew, with the hope that America would give my sisters future opportunities. And it would be well, like they had to do this without knowing if that sacrifice was going to play itself out. So my family story is the prototypical immigrant story. So you can imagine what it's going to be like. So my parents arrived here in the States, their college degrees didn't convert over. So my dad mopped floors, my mom made belts by the time I was born. So I was aware throughout my entire childhood how much my parents gave up for me for my chance to have more. But they always insisted that despite any setback, they were happy uh, because they saw a country that allowed their children to thrive. And that attitude and the way they were so determined and they were unfazed is where I get my drive. And that carries me through college where from an Indian family and the stereotypes, stereotypes are really true. Um, I had to be either a doctor or an engineer, and I really enjoyed tinkering at a young age. I actually became really intrigued about how technology intersects business. So I focused on computer science, but I decided my real love was information security. And I somehow segued into working for an accounting firm. And it wasn't all how I thought things were gonna go, but when I think back, everything I consider really exciting and attractive about a job, problem solving, data analytics, encouraging collaboration. That's where I found um, the big four and I spent 10 years there. And it was a great firm. It was a firm that I had mentors and sponsors, educational opportunities. I made my best friends there. I credit my time there to be really pivotal, pivotal um, for setting me up for success. But that wasn't the only thing going on in my life. So in 2012, I started in 2002, so 10 years later, 2012, I became a mom. And that created a huge shift and a new need for more flexibility. I needed a firm where I didn't have to choose between being a partner at the firm 
and a mother. And that's where I found Shellman. So the founder, Chris Shellman, reached out to me and asked me to help him with business development and marketing and grow the firm um, to make it, you know, a top 100 CPA firm, um, a leader in cybersecurity assessments. And I really didn't know about that at all, like marketing and business development. I was a techie, but I knew what clients wanted. So as years passed, I joined um, and then I started taking more and more off of Chris's plate. First, it was service delivery, then people and talent and finance. And then in 2018, as a computer science major who only practiced computer science and technology, um, but I work for a CPA firm, I passed my CPA and I took this non-traditional route into this industry and I became president of the firm. And then in 2021, we partnered with a private equity and we weren't actively looking, uh, but we recognized that if we wanted to grow and we had all these innovative goals, we needed a strategic partner with the right organization. So we partnered with private equity called Lightyear Capital. And that was in 2021. And it was a bit serendipitous um, because when they expressed interest in us, Chris was ready to retire. And we completed the due diligence process. And then October, 2021, I became Shellman's CEO. What a ride. <laughs> that's an, uh, that's an amazing story. I want to go back to, um, I mean, you know, our careers take all these weird twists and turns and when you were a little girl or where, when you were first getting into, you know, the big five or whatever, you probably didn't imagine that you'd be doing what you're doing right now. So, I mean, all that is always so in interesting how those different, you know, paths, you know, sort of wind through the woods of life. Um, but I want to go back to that foundational you know, immigrant experience. Um, I'm a first generation American myself. And, you know, a lot of the things you were talking about really resonated with me. And I want to hear a little bit from your perspective, like, what was the mantra you heard from your parents about what this country is? And, you know, obviously, this country has issues, uh, and so forth. But that there's a view, there's a lens uh, that, you know, immigrants seem to see this country in. And it seems in, in everybody that I that, that, that I talk to who have a similar background to us, um, there's like a similar refrain, you know what I'm saying? There's a similar sort of energy or there's a similar messaging that seems to like really get embedded into the minds of, you know, uh, their children that allow us to sort of take advantage perhaps uh, in a bit of a, diff a different way or look at things with a little bit of a different perspective. What what were those notes in, in the song of your life? Yeah, you know, um, this probably wasn't the most positive, but I can tell you when... And this shaped me and I had to learn from this. So when we came to the US, we came to New York and moved to Ohio. And my dad would always say, we are so blessed to be here. Like we have so many opportunities. There's so many people who don't have these opportunities. And I remember coming home one day, this story will always live with me. I remember coming home one day and there was some racist remarks on our, um, like our front door area. Yeah. I came in and there was my dad who was never home at three o'clock, uh, but came in and was like scratching it off and didn't say a word to me. Like I kept on asking what's going on. And he kept on saying like, keep your head down. Like at least nobody got hurt. I mean, just, it's okay. Like things like this happen, but we are so lucky. Keep your head down. Like don't make any waves. Right. And that actually stuck with me for a really long time. And it was a bit detrimental in my career. Like I would not raise my hand to mm. talk about issues that right. I had, right? I would head down, really great work, 
partners would always put me on things because I got a lot of work done. But you know what didn't happen? I was never invited to the seat at the table because I never challenged anyone. And I wasn't thinking out of the box and I wasn't like pushing people. And that mantra was, and I, I tell my kids right now, like, you got to speak up and don't just do this because that's what you expect to do. And that's what my parents always taught me. And not against them. Like they were just so happy to be here. Like to them, this was 200 times better than anything anywhere else. So why are we going to make a big stink about it? Like, yeah, this can, we can just paint over it and life goes on. And we're still at a place where we have so many opportunities, the American dream. And they lived it. Like my dad kissed the airport when he flew into LaGuardia. Like he was just so excited to be there. And that excitement, and he, he was the most patriotic person, like, right. you know, um, and, but things like that, like later on in life, I was like, well, I should have said something and we should have said, that's not fair. Mm -hmm. And I mean, but we learned from it and I've learned from it. And I learned that it's not that my voice wasn't being heard. It was, I wasn't raising it, raising it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so, I mean, that's a, that's an interesting story, you know, um, the advice he gave or that perspective he gave was his. And I'm sure that as you know, a parent, he was trying to give you the best advice and the best perspective. Um, and many times as parents, I mean, it sounds like we have kids that are kind of around the same age. You kind of don't know if you're screwing them up or not. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> we'll see, we'll see, we'll see what kind of therapy bill uh, my kids have uh, when they're older. But um, you know, it's, it, it's interesting. We tell our, we tell our kids, Cer certain things and those things become sort of like foundational pillars in how they see the world. And then at some point later, they see the world differently or something like that. You know, this thing about speaking up and making your voice heard is obviously the sort of antithesis to the, you know, the keep your head down kind of mantra that you kind of absorbed um, at some level. What walk me through that, that process of, you know, you kind of recognizing that, you know, my voice isn't being heard. I'm not, I'm just not speaking up and walk me through that, like, what was that, you know, what, what was that blossoming like? You know what I mean? Yeah. So this was about 10 years ago. I was preparing for a big panel in front of a thousand people on blockchain. And the moderator was someone who really didn't know much about blockchain. And it was me and two other people. And we were on this panel, but we were preparing for it. And so I educated the moderator on blockchain, the compliance issues of it, the risks and so forth. And there we are in front of, on stage, in front of a thousand people. Like, this is stuff that I really knew. Like, I was the expert when it yeah. came to this. And he asked the question, but before I could even answer, he answered the question for me. And I sat there and I didn't say anything. And we went on and I answered some questions and then I got off stage and I was like, what just happened? Here? Yeah. And someone came up to me afterwards and pulled me to the side and said, why didn't you stop him? Like, I've seen you talk before. Like, I know that you know this stuff. And why didn't you say anything? And that was it. Like some light bulb went out, like went off in my head. And I'm like, yeah, why didn't I say anything? And that just, I just needed someone to tell me, like no one had told me in my career that they realized it in front of a thousand people. And I didn't say anything. Right. And that was it that after that day, like my voice was heard a lot. And even to today, like, you know, it's, it's not that 
it's just I speak my mind and I will tell you when I'm wrong and I will tell you when I think something needs to be discussed and you can do it in a very kind and empathetic and mm -hmm. compassionate way. In my mind, I always thought if I say something that is negative or doesn't, is not the same thing someone else is saying mm -hmm. that I'm going to be looked down upon. I don't know why. I mean, that was just something that I grew up like never don't just keep your head down and do good work and people will see your good work. And, um, but then I realized, no, if you want a seat at the table, you have to be part of the conversation and that conversation, you're going to have discussions and those discussions are going to lead to ideas. And those ideas, some will be good, some will be bad, some you're going to fail, you're going to fail fast. But at the end, you're going to have really exciting initiatives. And if we didn't go through that entire process, right, of um, collaboration and um, disagreements, we would have never gotten there. And that has really changed the way that we are as a company, right? We, we believe in collaboration and we believe in healthy disputes, but at the end, we come up with our path forward. Some may not be completely excited about it, but us as a leadership team accept it and have the path forward. And it's, it's, it's healthy, it's very healthy. What do you think it was about speaking up, just to use that as like a shorthand, yeah. that felt so scary before you had that light bulb moment? Oh, and by the way, like that person who said that to you, they probably have no idea the monster they created, right? No, I don't even know who it is. <laughs> and I thought about that the other day and I was like, gosh, I wish I knew who that person was because I owe them a lot. Yeah. Right? And then I, I started thinking about, gosh, there's all these people in your lives that, you know, it's like the the butterfly flap, like yeah. you don't realize, or they don't realize the impact that they make, but this person made a significant impact. I would not be here if I- Isn't that wild? I mean, that's yeah. so wild stuff, stuff yeah. like that. I, you know, I'm thinking of a kind of a similar story. Um, I had a friend who just made this offhand kind of comment to me once, um, and it just stuck with me so much and it ended up giving me so much confidence and it just kind of set me on this different path. And it, it is that, that butterfly effect. I mean, it's, it's absolutely wild. Um, so let's go back to my question though, about like, what was it about speaking up or what was it about that picture of, of, you know, someone who was willing to speak up, um, that seemed like so, so far away from you because the way you described your like ability to speak up and really kind of drive toward an idea meritocracy, which is essentially somewhere where, you know, ideas can stand on their own and task conflict is different than personal conflict. And those can be sort of totally separate and you can just get to the best idea together. That many times, like you use the word empathy, you use the word, you know, you kind of have, have an implied humility in what you described. And many times that's kind of the opposite of the caricature that we see of sort of someone who's always willing to roll their sleeves up and sort of elbow into the table and so forth. Talk to me about that, like dichotomy. Yeah. So I think it all really started where my parents came here, they came here on a visa and everything, but there was always this if we aren't successful here, you know, if we get somebody upset, are we going to have to go back? Like, I think mm -hmm. that was kind of the, the mentality mm -hmm. and it was never said in the house, but that undertone was always there. Right. And I was born here. I was, I was born in Cincinnati, Ohio. Right. I wasn't going to go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think that's where the fear came. The second thing, and I'll be very honest is my whole family were people pleasers. And so the fear of someone not liking me was very difficult. 
I mean, it has taken me a long time to overcome that. You know, even as a manager, I dislike giving feedback because I was worried giving negative feedback would have me- would have meant that the person wouldn't like me. But what I've learned through these years, like giving feedback is the kindest thing that you can do, right? Kindly feedback is so kind because you're telling someone how they can be better, right? And they have to, you know, the person on the other side has to take it, understand and want to be better. But, you know, if you don't give timely feedback, you're going to get to a point where the straw on the camel's back, right? Mm -hmm. And then you give feedback and say, okay, this isn't working, right? And then the person leaves and you have a horrible relationship. Like giving feedback right on time, right when you see an issue or right when they do something wonderful is so kind. And I have to learn that. And that doesn't mean people aren't going to like me. I think people respect that and they respect transparency builds trust. And I think they respect that, you know, if you have open communication, you're going to be better. And that's what I worried about. I worried about like speaking up means people wouldn't like me. Yeah. I struggle with that myself sometimes. Um, you know, the feedback thing or like the likability thing. Um, and it ends up, you know, kind of creating a false, it's kind of like a false kindness in a way. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like where you're not actually being candid. I mean, if, you know, there's a way to be, to your point, transparent, candid, and kind at the same time. Those aren't mutually exclusive yeah. things. Yeah. And like if reality is truly our friend, then we should be able to talk about, you know, the strikes and the balls and the pitches in the dirt and the home runs and all those ki- kinds of things without it being, um, I don't know, an attack on the person or something. I don't know. Correct. I don't know like what the root of it is. It's just like, I mean, everything you're saying, I'm like, yeah, absolutely. I agree. And yet I still sort of find myself sort of struggling with that from time to time because I'm like, you know, maybe it's like I think people are like so fragile or something. I don't know. It's bizarre. But like if I say, you know, some negative feedback, then they're just going to like fall apart or something. I don't know. How, do, how, did, how did you work through that? Go ahead. Well, I realize we're not giving them enough credit. Like I'm making assumptions for this person. Yeah, good point. Resiliency. Right. And I shouldn't. Like right. maybe, maybe it's on me. Maybe if someone gave me bad feedback, I'm not going to be resilient. But that's like, I was putting it on someone else. Like I was making those assumptions and you're not a good leader when you do that, right? Like, and I started realizing, um, so I listened to this podcast by Adam Grant about um, radical transparency. Mm-hmm. And how do you have, how do you build a hyper-performing culture and an organization by being radically transparent? You know, they talked about Bridgewater and they talked about, you know, they would find the lowest performer and they would put him or her on the stage and they would tell everyone that they're a low performer. I'm not going to do that. But what I took from that is we can be transparent. And the earlier you are transparent, right, is the er the longer someone is going to have to become better at something. And the longer someone's going to have to exploit their positive skills and learn how to mitigate the risk from their negative skills, right? And if I wait an entire year to give someone feedback and I say, this whole year, you've been a horrible performer, they have zero time, right? Now I'm going to exit you, right? There's nothing kind. I mean, there's nothing compassionate about that. But if I see on week one that this person is struggling, maybe that's all they need. And it has worked. Like we have given, and, and I do it today, is like feedback in real time. 
and we don't wait for performance evaluations. We don't wait for a one-on-one. -on -one. It's, hey, give me a call. Let's talk through this. How can I help you? What are you? And then when you run, maybe there's a personal issue. Maybe they're going yeah, through right, something. Right. Maybe there's something else that I don't know about. But if I don't have that conversation, and we hate picking up the phone. I think it's like everybody hates picking up the phone <laughs> these days. Like email doesn't work. IM doesn't work. Like pick up the phone and have this conversation. We've seen like our highest level of performance that we've ever seen last year. Yeah, it's, I mean, it at least creates a forum. Like to your point, if there's like something personal going on, and somebody maybe doesn't feel comfortable bringing that forward on their own, you if you can open up a conversation about what's really happening, well, then you might get some information that you wouldn't otherwise get, and then you don't fall victim to that negativity bias, which we all have, which is always assuming the worst, you know? Um, that, But, you know, to your point, that those little extra steps uh, are super critical. Um, so let's go back. You, the light bulb turn, turns on for you. You feel more confident speaking up. You feel more confident um, letting your voice be heard. How did you see the trajectory of your career change, you know, kind of around that, that moment forward? Yeah, it did. I mean, it, I started seeing an upward um, and it was all confidence. It is so interesting how confidence can change the way that your trajectory goes. I was technically confident. I think I always was technically confident, right? But once I had that voice and once I started asking right? I started getting that seat at the table and, you know, my ideas were shared and some were used, some weren't, and some were collaborated and made better and some were shot down. And um, those were all such great learning experiences. Like, I think grit is so important. And I tell my kids this all the time. Like, if you're real, if you keep your head down and you just do work and you're really good at it, like you don't have that adversity <laughs> that you need to realize mm. what is good and what is not good, right? So I started getting like those ups and downs of really high because things were good and then really low because I screwed something up and really high. And all of that, my trajectory started going a little bit higher, right? And it wasn't easy. I didn't get to A from point A to B in a very traditional way. I took a lot of bounces around, but my trajectory changed. And I think it was because one, I had confidence. Two, I no longer had the fear of failure. Mm -hmm. People ask me, what is the number one advice that I can give you? I'm like, don't fear failure. Don't. Like, Nick, think about your past. Like, has anything really happened that was so terrible you couldn't overcome? No. No, right? And I asked this, like, there's been so many things at that point in my life. I'm like, how am I going to overcome this? But I do. We all do. We're resilient. We're agile. And you have, like, once I started realizing, okay, I'm going to take a risk. I might fail. It's okay. I'm going to, it's like, you became like a superhero. Right. It's just something changes that it's okay. Failure, you'll move on. It's not going to be the end of the world. And that is hard for anyone. I mean, it was hard for me for 35 years. <laughs> it was really hard. I mean, it's hard for all of us. I, you know, I think, there's a certain like uh, finality implied to failure. You know, it's like, okay, it's over. The grade is printed. And like the failure fallacy is a brutal one because it ends up crippling everybody. You know, it's paralyzing. Right. And to your point, like the only final thing is like you falling into a coffin. You know what I'm saying? 
Like it's not, it's not, it's not a failure. It can be a lesson unless you let it define yourself. But that sort of just fear of being defined by a failure just prevents so much of that uh, confidence, that like expression of gifts that that we may have, and just kind of keep us on that status quo. You know? Yeah. I mean, I think that fear is what hinders us. Yeah. The ability of taking risks and yeah. trying new things, right? Like if we don't try anything new we stay obsolete. I was on a call earlier where someone's like, we're growing too fast. And I said, well, if we're not growing, we're contracting. There's nothing else. Yeah. There's one or the other, right. I mean, you're not growing, you're contracting. And you know that, and I understand there's stress and anxiety, there's impact on mental and physical health, but overcoming that fear of failure and embracing, like you have to embrace that the possibility of making mistakes is going to make you confident. It's going to make you resilient. And I think that's the way you're going to reach these goals. And and you got to reach stretch goals, right? You know, I, I write my goals down at the beginning of every year and I write some goals that I know I'm going to make and I can cross out, right? It makes me feel good. But 75% of my goals are goals that are outside my comfort zone. You got to go outside your comfort zone to grow and you won't grow outside of like if you, and that is really how I grew up, right? I always stayed within my comfort zone. Mm. People liked me in my comfort zone. I wasn't, you know, it was status quo and uh, yeah. But then once you break out of that, there's so much possibility in the world. Yeah. 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 That's good. I like, I like that idea of like, you know, having a large portion of stretch goals. And I like the idea of uh, kind of being a little bit scared about, by your goals. You know, if they're all layups, you're not really going to be getting that, that much better. You're not going to be getting that much bigger. Um, so that stretch is, I think, really important. Um, you know, and kind of what a lot of what you're talking about is like this word, you know, I just the, this word keeps ringing in my mind of like intentionality. You're intentionally putting these goals down. You're intentionally stepping out of your comfort zone. You're intentionally trying to make your voice heard. And, you know, I think um, the clients you serve are similar to a lot of our listeners just in terms of like archetype and correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of them are in, you know, these cost center uh, roles, right? Where they have a hard time getting budget and they have a hard time make turning on the light bulbs in the, you know, leadership or board level of the, of their organization to the true impact, uh, you know, that they're having on, on the bottom line and the second and third order, you know, things that they influence. And what I, you know, that's why I really love this talk because so much of the, like, so much of what it takes for them to turn those light bulbs on is already inside of us. It's just stepping out of that comfort zone or making your voice heard or, you know, risking quote unquote failure, which is not even a real thing. You know what I'm saying? Like, what would you tell those people? I mean, you kind of said it a little bit, but like, what else would you tell these kinds of folks who feel kind of pigeonholed or maybe chewed up and spit out or just kind of stuck at this kitty table and they got into this business because, you know, they, they were energized by it or they saw the possibilities of it. And then now they feel like a little bit stuck and maybe stagnated, flat tire, that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, I think everybody, there's every organization has a collective purpose. Um, so I live in Orlando. And if you go to Disney, Disney will tell you their collective purpose. Everyone, Cinderella, the CFO, the CEO, to the person who's sweeping. They have a collective purpose of making happiness. Right? Regardless of who you are, there's somewhere in that chain of excellence that you have a purpose, right? And that's what I would say we're auditors, right? We go in, we tell you what's wrong. And you're right. People think we're a cost center. People think we're, 
you're checking the box with us. We come once a year, check the box, they're gone, or auditors are gone, right? But we have a collective purpose. What are we doing? We're helping our customers, or we're helping our clients build trust with their customers. Like, we are. That's what we're doing. Like, we're reviewing something, making sure that they have the right security posture. We're giving them a report of high quality that they can give their customers, and they can say, you can trust our environment, right? We got to figure out what our collective purpose is, and we got to make sure that resonates throughout the entire organization, right. everybody, not just not just the the revenue generation, not just the back office, not just the cost centers, right? Everybody has a purpose, and that purpose is what should be overarching right. the organization. And once you do that, I think people won't feel pigeonholed because they'll know where they are in that life cycle of being able to do something so meaningful, like. Oh my goodness, what I'm doing here is affecting the stock market, right? Let's let's talk about three steps ahead because you are an auditor is 100%. or someone who's an assistant to the CEO is, right? You know, someone who's working in finance and doing, you know, forecasting, yes, they're going to affect that. And I think that is so important. That's something we didn't do at Shellman until recently was what is our collective purpose? And that's what I said, you know, we are helping our clients build trust with their customers. Whoever you are at the organization, you have that significant impact. So tell me about that light bulb moment, because that's a very romantic thing, but I think it's actually true. And I think I'm totally on your page. Like we, sh we all can trace our day-to-day -day efforts to, to this broader purpose that is probably foundational to, to the organization, unless you're absolutely like, I don't know. I can't even think of something that like is actually like an appendage or like a vestigial thing that, you know, and you know, the guy who's like the fax machine monitor or something, I don't know. But like, tell me about the, like um, the moment that that light bulb came on where you're, you're like, you know what, everything we're doing here is helping our clients build trust with their customers. I mean, that is a big, that's a big sort of revolutionary sort of statement that is very powerful. Yeah. So I'll tell you how it started. Um, we have new hire orientation every two, three weeks. And I would sit up there and I would talk about our mission and our vision and our values and nothing resonated. Like when I was saying it, like some of our our values were, you know, we were, we strive to be second to none. We only do what we know. And I was like, no romance in that. It's hard to hold on to that. Yeah. And I go like, and I was hearing a lot of grumblings at the organization. Like, you know, service delivery, they're the ones that go out and they charge mm -hmm. to the client. And they're the ones that are, I mean, and they get all of, you know, the, the time and the resources. And then I would hear from service delivery that internal service delivery doesn't understand what we're doing. And I had to say, stop, like, stop everyone, including myself. And I go, and I had to, and I learned this. I was, you know, went to the Disney Institute and they said, this was the collective purpose of Disney. And I was like, well, we all have a collective purpose, right. all of us. My husband works at a hospital. What's his collective purpose, right? It's making a healthier tomorrow. Maybe that's your collective purpose. Um, and that was it. And I stopped and I said, regardless of who you are here, what are we doing? We're, we have a deliverable that is independent, high quality that we're giving to somebody and they're giving it to their regulators and they're giving it to their clients. And what does that deliverable do? It builds trust, right? And that was it. That's what we do. We help our clients build trust with their customers. But then it also brought everything together. We right. did a complete revamp of our values, our mission, our vision. Um, and we created something called the chain of excellence. And it is this chain where everyone is involved. And what is it? Like 
it is, we commit to people first. We, you know, openness builds trust and we don't, we never stand still. Those are our three new values. And that's what it is. It's innovation, transparency, and people, right? And that all um, took a lot of work to get I'm there. I'm sure, but, yeah. But, but it resonated. And what we did. Well, that's how you know it's working. It. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And I actually went out, uh, we were on a Zoom call and it was probably a hundred of our employees. And I said, if anybody can write the eight core values of the firm in the chat, I will give you a thousand of my own dollars. No one knew them. How do you have guiding principles when you don't even know what they are, right? right? But these three, um, it all kind of works. It can, you, together. can you say them again? Openness builds trust. Oh, so first is uh, uh, commit to people first. Okay. Uh, openness builds trust and never stand still. Never stand still. But don't grow too fast. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> uh, so how, so you, you roll this out and, you know, I think a culture initiative like that is you, you obviously don't want to redo it all the time, but you know that when you get it right, there's different changes. There's a different, I don't know, there's like a different energy in the room or something. Talk to me about like how it felt on those new higher orientations or how they feel now versus like how they used to feel, yeah. you know? Yeah. Oh, well, it meant something. Yeah. Right? It, it, it's, we were half lucky half like half uh, yeah. talent right when it, but you know we've made decisions some have been great but you know we're always kind of growing so our decisions were good but we didn't have guiding principles around our decision and I think that was detrimental and now people realize that when we hire someone do the, they have these three core values when we acquire a company do they have these three core values when we bring on a client do they have these three core values? Transparency is really important, right? If we're doing an audit, right? And so the whole room, it was just like an aha moment for everyone that now we have this criteria that we can push everything on. There's not, do we want to bring on a new supplier? Do we, there's just so many things yeah. that we can say, well, do they meet these three guiding <laughs> principles of ours? And decision making became really easy. Totally. <laughs> And so it was a real aha moment. And we now use it when we interview people. And I mean, it just. It's actually the, you know, they actually serve. They're actually serving to guide you, which is what they're supposed to do. Right. Like <laughs> I always picture, um, I always picture a business or like, you know, for us, we're trying to climb this mountain and there's this path up the mountain, which is our purpose. And there are these guideposts that are values that, that should guide us on that. Uh, but to your point, I mean, we kind of went through the same thing. We used to have 10 values. Nobody could remember them. Um, but if it's working, then those guideposts, those, you know, road signs actually do keep you on the path. And it does simplify so much hiring, you know, whatever, like business decisions, like you, you at least have an algorithm or, or you, you at least have a, uh, a true North that you can, you know, use to kind of sort through. I mean, cause I don't know. I mean, <laughs> Every day, it's something different. Every day, it's a new challenge. Every day, it's a new decision you have to make and, and, and whatever. And if you're just constantly kind of shooting from the hip and making it up as you go, it's a very stressful place. And it's a, um, and the outcomes just aren't as, you know, you're not going to keep everybody as aligned, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so a couple of things I wanted to kind of talk to you about some more. Um, like, what, you know, when I talk to you, you know, before the show and then, you know, you're kind of alluding to, to it now, 
you know, this people first thing, I think 20, 30 years ago, you would have gotten laughed out of the room kind of even talking about it. What do you think is driving the change to not o- to where now not only can we talk about it without being like ridiculed openly, but actually it's uh, enabling your business to kind of accelerate at a pace of change and a growth rate that's, you know, probably orders of magnitude, you know, above average. What is, yeah. what's changed and what, like, and how do you kind of live that out in a way that actually uh, your people believe it? Sure. So I think what has changed is there's finally real evidence that committing to people, decreasing attrition, increasing retention has a direct ROI impact. I, and we see that. And I mean, I know I see it. it. Every time I lose a person, it takes me two people to bring on, to get them up to speed and do the same amount of work that that one person can do, right? I've got to retrain to distracting, right? The managers are distracted, the partners are distracted, operations is distracted, right? But if we could have committed to people and we could, if we can give them a customized employee experience or we can become, I, I say, I wanna become a destination workplace where people come, right? When they um, want to start a career. If we can do that and we can save, like if we can have them think it's not a job and it's a career and they stay here for a long time, our clients are happier. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, they're promoters for the company. I mean, there is a significant direct ROI um, to the organization. So I think that has changed that we never had that data before. Right. And especially now, I mean, we're a professional services firm. We don't make widgets. Right. And so if I lose a person, I lose a relationship, mm-hmm. you know, I'm losing someone who has this one-on-one relationship with a client that is so impactful. And I realized that. So what have we done? Um, I think there's the biggest thing has been we ask for feedback and we actually do something with it. So we ask for it, we look at it. A lot of the things we implement because we're a really we, we don't have this bureaucracy, or we tell people we're not gonna do it, right? So I've gotten questions a lot about four-day work weeks. And today we're not gonna implement it. I may change my mind in the future in a year or two, but right now we're a professional services firm. Our clients are open on Friday and we, we meet a certain number of hours, right? I may change my mind, but I get that feedback and I'm very transparent about why we're not gonna do it. That has changed how people feel about the company. They come to me, they come to leadership much earlier and quicker before they get so frustrated that they want to leave or before they become disgruntled, right? right? And they say, these are the things I wish that we can do. We take it. And then we let everybody know, yes, we're going to do it or no, we're not going to do it. And that's it. It's that radical transparency that we do. I do personally with my team, but also we expect people to come to us and be very transparent about it and feel comfortable. You know, we have a, an email um, that comes to myself and the COO and that says, you know, tell me the concerns that you have and send us an email and we're going to look at it. And not only tell us what's wrong, but give us what you think a solution is going to be. People come up with phenomenal solutions right. better than I. Yeah. 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 You can start kind of crowdsourcing some stuff and, you know, uh, it's not all on you to do it. But, you know, yeah. I guess let me ask you, let me ask you it a different way. Everything you described everyone had the sort of possibility to do that a generation ago, right? 
They were professional services firms a generation ago. I mean, if you don't have the actual data, there's at least the implied data or the, the implied pain in the neck of having to hire somebody new, right? Like that whole cost of hiring somebody new um, was known. And yet this, everything you're, you're talking about seems like so revolutionary. Is it just our generation is more open to being transparent, that you're more open to the role that you can play as a servant to your organization? I mean, what do you, I mean, it's some kind of like, like, uh, it seems like some kind of like secular mindset shift or something that's allowing for this kind of management, or it, it's allowing for management like this to generate, you know, outsized returns or better workplaces or, you know, destination workplaces, whatever you want to call it today. And it wasn't really possible 20, 30, 40 year, years ago, yeah. or it was at least a lot more, more rare, you know? So I think there's a couple of things. One, I think this great resignation really hurried everything up, right? I mean, the, the talent shortage has been very difficult for everyone. So when you have talent shortage and you know you can't go find it, you got to keep people happy. Mm -hmm. So I think that accelerated this whole people first. But I also think that, you know, you hear the negatives about this generation and that generation of, you know, they want more work-life integration. I think it's great. They know what they want and they ask for it. And my generation was keep your head down and, you know, get your work done. I think this is great. We're just shifting the way we work, but it doesn't mean we're not more efficient or we're not more innovative. We're just doing it a different way. And it's on me to change for that next generation, right? I can't, you know, our industry, you know, accounting firms and audit firms have always said you busy season, you're working 60 hours, 70 hours a week. But why are we looking at performance based on hours? Why don't we look at performance based on outcome? Mm -hmm. So do you really have to work 70 hour weeks? Like people are probably sitting there just logging time because they have to hit, there was no. I mean, we both lived it. I, yeah, that's exactly what people are doing. <laughs> Well, why are we doing that? Well, shouldn't we like reward people for doing quality work in 40 hours instead of reprimand people for doing okay work in 60 hours or be really happy with people who do shitty work for 80 hours? Right. Like, I mean, what's going on here? Like we are looking at the wrong outcome and this generation is finally telling us that. And I think it is a great shift. I'm excited about it because it's the way it changes the way that I look at things. I want to be performance-based outcomes, not tenure-based, not hour-based, not billable hour-based. I want quality performance-based, um, you know, deliverables. That's what I want. Um, I feel like there's probably some kind of like comfort in looking at those hours. It's like you don't have to look at the sort of complex machine that is this sort of professional services organization i can just focus on these inputs of just hours boom and i just let the you know i let the procedures sort of take care of themselves the reports issue and take care of 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 uh of themselves what do you think that is i mean what do you think like why i mean there's still people that are holding on to that thing i mean everything i think 20 20 years from now everything you're saying is going to be like the way things are done but we're kind of at this interesting sort of like inflection point where um, th this forward thinking way to run a company really does resonate with people at a deeper level. You end up getting, you know, the longer tenure or you get people to like actually engage. Like I'm sure your employee engagement is a lot higher than, you know, most other organizations because they have a leader who kind of in their mind gets it. Um, why, 
why are people so threatened by that change? I mean, I deal with it kind of all the time myself, but like, why do you, why do you think they're so threatened by the, the changing of a season? You know what I'm saying? I think it's human nature to feel uncomfortable with change, but yeah. I also think it's, you mentioned, it's easy to look at data to do all this other stuff. It's very time consuming. Right. Got to put a lot of money into it. You got it. It's a lot more training. No more it's time. a lot more yeah. feedback, a lot more listening to people, right? It's a lot more change. And, you know, that's not, it's not easy, right? But I do think the fruits of your labor are seen in spades once you do implement Agree. something like this. You just have to go through that season of change. And I think the second thing is, it goes back to this feedback. Like if you look at qualitative, or sorry, if you look at quantitative data versus qualitative data, it's much easier to give feedback. You didn't hit 2000 hours, so I'm gonna give you a three. Okay. I mean, but instead of saying, you know, you didn't meet expectations, like you didn't have that difficult conversation with that client or yeah, you didn't get that point. report out of it. Like nobody likes giving feedback and we have to go all the way back to that. Like giving feedback is a kind process. And I think those two things, it's hard and no one likes to give feedback. <laughs> you know who I don't have a problem giving fe feedback to? My kids. And, you know, my parents were pretty transparent with their feedback to me, and I still felt loved. You know what I'm saying? Like, I didn't feel like, uh, you know, I was living in a doghouse or something, but they had expectations, and I met them, and I still felt, you know, their love and their guidance and all those kinds of things. It's bizarre. You know, I, sp I spent all this time talking about, like, you know, we need to bring our whole selves to work and, you know, not kind of draw this weird line of demarcation between, you know, the work me and the at-home me and so forth. But I still tend tend to do that and think – that I can't have that same kind of relationship. Not that people are my kids, of course, but like you can have both of those things. You know what I'm saying? That yeah. transparency, that ex that clear expectation setting and a caring acceptance. And those are not mutually exclusive in the work world. You know what I mean? You know, one major thing that I forgot to say is feedback is good, but if you don't let them know what the accountability measures are, that you have to do that early yeah. on, right? You have to say, these are our firm goals. These are your goals. This is what you're going to be accountable for. And then I'm going to give you feedback. You, I, it's true. You have to have all of that before you give feedback. Like, I just can't come to you and say, hey, Nick, like you did a terrible job. You didn't do this, this, and this. And then you say, well, I didn't know I was accountable for it. Right. right? I mean, just setting up all of that early on. Like, these are your KPIs. These are your quarter one goals. And then if you don't meet these, you have a level of accountability and this is what's going to happen, right? Like people love that. Like I love it when I know what the next five steps are going to be, right? Right. There's no anxiety. There's no me thinking at home of like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen if I don't do this? Well, I know this is what's going to happen, right? It's, it's transparency, but it's also, I think it decreases anxiety for people. Yeah. I mean, you know, imagine going to a, like a class, you know, a test for a class and like, you have no idea what's going to be on the test. Not that you don't know the questions, but like, you don't even know what the test is going to cover. I mean, that's obviously yeah. like a bizarre way. <laughs> it's yeah. a bizarre test. Okay. Um, yeah. so what was it? So you're in, you know, big four have a great career there. You're a blockchain expert. You're an expert of the intersection of tech and business. Um, what was it about the Shellman opportunity that thought that made you think, you know what, I'm going to roll the dice and kind of hop, hop over here. What did you see there that like 
allowed you to, to leave what would have been a phenomenal career. You probably, you probably would have been partner by now or beyond or something like what, uh, what piqued your interest? Yeah. You know, I needed more autonomy. And I think at large organizations, sometimes that's really difficult to do until you get to a certain point. And I wanted autonomy. I wanted flexibility. I was a mother yeah. and I didn't want to choose between being a mother and a partner. And I felt at that time at the firm, I would have to choose between being one or the other. And I wanted to go to a place where I can really put my mark on. You, I don't want anyone to pick between being a father or a mother and a great worker. I think you can be both. Right. You know, there is integration, there's balance. And, and I just wasn't getting that there at that time. And I think things have really changed since, um, you know, there is definitely a people first um, at a lot of these um, firms, but that's what I wanted. And, you know, I had a lot of great ideas and I wanted to implement them. And I wanted to like, I tell my kids all the time, like our legacy isn't a financial legacy or the things that we have. Our legacy is how do we make this little place on the map where we are better than when we came into it? And that's what I wanted to do with the, with the profession and the industry is how can I make it a little bit better than I came into it? And that's what we're doing here. And it's exciting. We're disrupting, we're changing, we're people first. We never stand still. Openness. I mean, not see, see all of our values. See, they just come pouring out when they're this authentic. I love it. <laughs> um, what's been most surprising since you've ascended from, you know, president to, to CEO? How is this different than what you imagined it to be either when you first stepped into the company or, you know, even before you, you know, when you just thought about what it was like to be a CEO, you know, before you even were on that path? most surprising thing is I really enjoy it. Like I really enjoy, I thought it was going to be, it's hard work. And yeah. Long hours. Don't get me wrong. But every day is a new challenge. And I really enjoy that. Like yeah. I, I'm a computer engineer. I love tinkering things. I love opening it up, looking at it and seeing how I can fix it. And that's what I get to do every day. Like I get to open it up, see what's wrong and make it better. And that's fun and that's exciting and has an impact on people's lives and it has an impact on our clients and we're, we're doing something better for the world. And I didn't think I was ever going to be able to do that. Let's, let's jump in our time machine and let's go forward now. And it's 10 years into the future, 15 years into the future. How are our workplaces different? Yeah. You know, I, I think we're, well, I think it's going to be a lot of AI. I think that, you know, tasks that burden us as people and don't allow us to work to our fullest are going to be gone. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to have a lot of people who are really satisfied with their jobs because they get to do what they love and what they're really good at instead of all this administrative stuff. Like I talked to my husband, who's a physician. He loves seeing patients. He loves making them have them be a healthier tomorrow. He spends a lot of time dictating and yeah. writing in their charts, right? All this stuff that if he could just put that to the side and just focus on patient care, the outcomes would be better. Right. Like people wouldn't be waiting for an hour, right? I think that's the future. I think we're going to take technology, enable it, not us to lose our jobs, enable us to get skilled and upskilled where needed, but enable us to be really content and really good at what we do because that's what we're going to focus on. 
Um, I love that vision of the future. I would love to uh, get some of these mundane tasks that weigh me down off of my plate. That'd be phenomenal. Um, this has been a great, this has been a really fun time. I appreciate you being so generous and sharing so much of your philosophy with us. And um, yeah, um, people can find you on LinkedIn and uh, at Shelman. Is it Shelman.com? It is. Yep. Shelman.com for, uh, and you guys specialize primarily in like SOC 2 audits, cybersecurity audits, things yep. like that. Okay. SOC 2, PCI, high trust, bed ramp, and pen testing. Okay, very good. Um, thank you so much. This was really a blast. Um, really a pleasure to talk with you. And uh, until next time. Appreciate it. Thank you, Nick.